Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Good morning. Uh, the title of the sermon today is uh, Getting Comfortable Sitting in Discomfort. Seems weird, right? How can you have both at the same time? We're going to explore that today. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for the privilege of being a child of yours. I want to thank you for the discomfort of being your follower. I want to praise you for the refining that happens to me. I ask, Lord, that you bless today, that you take the child in me, the young boy, man who is and is scared to speak publicly or to share his thoughts for fear of shame, and that you would come in and ignite a passion within me, give me the words, the wisdom, and the knowledge to convey it. I ask, Lord, for receiving minds. I ask for good memories. That when people leave here today, that they may not remember the exact words, but they get the idea that they choose differently. Amen. Mark 4.35 starts by saying, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was asleep at the back of the boat. He was asleep on a cushion. The disciples woke him, and I can picture this as very frantically, and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. When we look at the life of Jesus, we should be looking big picture. When we look at the Bible and ourselves and how we interact in that story, we need to take a macro perspective, a large perspective. We need to pull from the entirety of our personal life experiences and that which we are reading and see how they intertwine. So for a moment, I'm asking you to do just that. When we look just specifically at the life of Jesus, it's very clear to see that from his conception, it was uncomfortable. He was a bastard child. Not only did he come from Nazareth, which was an outcast town, but he was the outcast within the outcast town. That's not comfortable. Where he was born was in a manger. Yes, we see the nice nativities, but do we smell them? He was born amongst feces. He was born in an uncomfortable place. Who he ministered to, the Gentiles, the sinners, the outcasts, not comfortable. The homeless person on the median asking for money, not comfortable. 
who he healed, the lepers, the lame, the lost, the bleeding, the dead, the blind. And how dare he in that time period speak to a woman alone at the well, not comfortable. Who he protected, the prostitute, naked at his feet, caught in her complete and utter shame, was in complete violation of all the laws, was by all rights deserving of death by stoning, not comfortable. To be the one man to face the whole crowd, a bastard child from Nazareth, only known by a few as the Messiah, but seen as a reject by everyone. To stand tall and firm, to offer grace and mercy. I wonder if the prostitute felt she was deserving of it, let alone the crowd. Not comfortable. His choice in disciples, I mean, come on, one of them sold him out. One of his very closest 12 sold him for a few denarii. Not comfortable. Who he sought out? The demoniac. While all his disciples were running back into the ocean and onto their boat, he was walking toward. While the whole city and town that was full of Gentiles ignored the demoniac, Jesus healed him and went toward him on a town that a Jewish man had no business being at. Not comfortable. Reading from Matthew 10, starting at 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against the father, a daughter against the mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And who, who, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That is an extremely hard verse to wrap our minds around, isn't it? When you're reading it snuggled up to your spouse or your children, or you're finding refuge within the very home that you need ever so much, to read this and really comprehend it is not comforting. And ultimately, even Jesus' death wasn't comfortable. It's not comfortable to think about. It's not comfortable to watch. It's hard to imagine, let alone experience. Now, I was supposed to ask you a question at the start, and I'm human, so I'm flawed and I missed it, but I'll just jump back. Are we as Christians to follow Jesus' example? Are we to be like Christ? I mean, you can't really claim being a Christian if you can't accept the fact that the very word Christian means to be like Christ. Well, we can do it at surface and we can throw the word around, but can we actually live that way? Many of my generation and older really wrestle with the younger generations of today, don't we? They're overprivileged. 
know-it-alls. They don't put the work in. I think they're evolved. I think they're growing. I think they call us out, and we don't like that. So we would rather shun them than become uncomfortable. It said very clearly that whoever doesn't pick up their cross, not his cross, he's already bore it. Their cross, your cross. So today, I hope I make you uncomfortable. I hope I force you to a place of discomfort. I, for, I hope I, I cause an inclining, plant a seed, not a sledgehammer. I don't want to destroy you. I don't want to have you fall apart unless that's the place Jesus needs you to be right now. I want to encourage you to be okay with being uncomfortable. With addressing the things that you know you've been avoiding with recognizing that it is true that you do not measure up at times as parents, as children. We're really good at talking. I'm very good at talking. I don't always make sense, but I'm very good at talking. And we tell people all the time, it's okay to make mistakes, don't we? Right? You say it to your children, you've said it lots. But then when we make a mistake, what do we do? Oh, I'm so stupid. How, how could I have ever done that? So we're telling them that it's okay to make mistakes, but we're exampling that making mistakes is not okay. The discomfort I'm pushing upon you right now is do your words match your actions? Or are they lip service? Are they dogmatic, religious sayings? It really means squat now to a lot of people. When people used to say the Christians, it evoked something. Fear amongst others and empowerment amongst the Christians. Today we toss the word around like bacon on sandwiches or whatever, veggie meat you like. It means nothing anymore to a lot of people. Even those that claim it because it's so easily spoken, but so uncomfortable to live. I've worked in construction for, I did the math, I started in 1991 as uh, an apprentice electrician, till now, that's 30 years. Before that, I was born into a household where my dad was in construction. He owned a beaver lumber store and then he would do construction on the side, anywhere from putting carpet into minor renovations. So the construction world is really a language and a life that I know very well. And having been in it professionally for 30 years and ultimately my whole life, I know what happens on job sites. I know how people sit back quietly as risky moves and big pressures come to get things done. I watch how old men get young men hurt with their unrealistic expectations and lack of direction. And so for me this week, seeing and hearing about the crane and the loss of five lives extremely saddens me, but it also very much angers me. 
Because we would rather sit back quietly and not speak up when somebody's doing something wrong on a job site or in life or at our workplace than to say, hey, hold on a minute. What you're about to do doesn't seem very safe. And it could just have been, maybe, that one action that saved five lives. Or maybe change your whole entire marriage or your entire walk with Christ. That one courageous moment to sit in the discomfort and to listen to the calling. In healing circles, there's this therapeutic term that's commonly used. I've already used it here, but it's usually established later in therapy. Once you become comfortable with your therapist and there's a therapeutic alliance formed and you're really getting to the rubber meets the road of, of therapy and just kind of truly sharing what's going on with you instead of sugarcoating it, because we all do that, right? I mean, that's our self-protection. We, we go and give the best version of what happened at home as opposed to the real version. <laughs> but when we start to give that real version and we start to really own our stuff and we start to really wrestle with new realities, not the fake ones and the lies that we've bought into, but the new realities of our thinking, the, the inner realities of our psyche, the reality of, of not passing the course you thought you would pass, or the reality of not maybe getting to the place you thought you would be by a certain age. That the clinician will very timely, hopefully, plant the seed and just state, next time you come to that spot, I would like you to lean into the discomfort. It's interesting to me that in the psychology world, the very great therapeutic technique of this exact statement is the exact example of Christ's life. Everything he did was exactly that. It wasn't lip service, it was action. And it was intimately between him and God. So that's great. That's good. We've got this part down. We can all agree. Great. We got to lean into discomfort. What does that look like? I've got three key points. Three seems like a good number. All the other speakers use it. We'll pick three. <laughs> I picked three points. Each one of these points is a sermon onto itself. I'm not going to do that to you today. But I believe and have experienced that these three points give us the ability to become comfortable sitting in discomfort. And I'm sorry, but if you're still sitting in the expectation that why do I have to sit in discomfort? Wouldn't I want to work my way towards comfort? I'm going to tell you that as Christians, that's a lie. You're living in a world that is designed and set up for discomfort until Jesus comes again. And until that moment happens, 
Get used to the fact that you're not going to be comfortable. And if you are comfortable, maybe you need to ask yourself, what numbing, coping, avoiding behaviors have you established that are well entrenched long into your marriages, long into your personal lives, long into your dogmatic approach to everything that have allowed you to be there? How many times have you been at work and put up with trash that you shouldn't be? How many times have you seen people taken advantage of? How many times have you taken advantage of people because you didn't want to speak up. Because you didn't want to be placed in a position of discomfort, to be that guy or that gal. If you're going to be a warrior for Christ, at some point, you will have to take a stand. First of all, with yourself. That's right, your cross. So the first principle I want to focus on today or look at is self-compassion. On this principle, there hangs so much. Self-compassion involves knowing that you're flawed and offering yourself grace, young people, mercy and understanding and acceptance that it's okay to be flawed. Why? Because we're not God. Go back to the Garden of Eden. The serpent said, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. We can't restore that which was never ours. We were never meant to be gods. We were meant to be who it was we were that God created us to be. And his restoration power is what will deliver us, not ours. So self-compassion involves knowing that you're flawed, offering yourself grace, mercy, understanding, and acceptance. That even flawed at your worst, you have value. And because of Jesus, you are deserving of compassion, self-compassion, and self-forgiveness. I, I see so many adults, why can't these kids just move on and get over it? Because we're not offering them, in reality, that which they actually need. You can't give what you don't have. You can't offer your children mercy and compassion when you're not living it towards yourself. You can't offer them Christ when you just claim his name but don't live his life. They see through you. Ultimately, it's the repeated practice of self-compassion that builds up enough love and energy, enough self-love and energy to bring yourself to a place of heavenly restoration. When we practice self-compassion enough, it gives us the energy and strength to move us from where we're at to where we need to be. If we're not practicing self-compassion, we're stuck in a holding pattern, just reliving the same thing over and over, ignoring it, numbing it, avoiding it. Same darn argument in the marriage, same <laughs> financial woes, the same... It's in those moments of self-compassion. And one of the things I've learned about self-compassion in my own personal walk is the way in which I talk to myself, the story I tell myself. Now, I can meet my friend Jonathan, who is here to support me today, and offer him very much compassion for his poor behavior at times. I can, he could maybe act as an as a angry father at a time or something and really get too heavy uh, vocal with his kids or whatever and be feeling really down. And I could say, come on, Jonathan, you're a good man. This was a moment. This was a moment in time. And I know you feel defeated and, and, and weak right now. 
and I can offer him compassion, understanding, love, grace, mercy. But I can go and do the same behavior and offer myself the exact opposite. So here's the, here's the key. When you're in that moment, and this is hard work, this is your cross, treat yourself just like you would treat your best friend going through the exact same thing. I've had this. I've literally sat in my car, defeated, in tears, hating myself, contemplating why I even exist, and had to say, whoa, what would I say to Jonathan right now if he was in my shoes? Well, I would say this, and then I would say, and it wasn't long after doing that that I found the strength and the ability to move past long life patterns that have been holding me back. The story we tell ourselves is a story we live. Unfortunately, many of us have bought the devil's lies and we tell ourselves the devil's stories. When we begin to tell ourselves the proper stories and treat ourselves like we're our own best friend, we begin to live and act and walk and talk as new creations. We are called to be the new creations that we are called to be. A biblical example of this is the prostitute. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She lifted up her eyes in her shame and looked around. No one was there. And in complete disbelief, knowing full well and even believing that she herself deserved to die probably in that moment. No one is here, sir. Well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's in that moment that the narrative changed in her mind that she found the strength to go and live a new life. Second principle is self-care. Yep, self-care. It involves learning about the needs of the new creation you are. Without self-compassion, you won't be able to practice self-care very well. Because it's through the self-compassion that you learn who you truly were meant to be by God. It's in the new narrative that is given to you by the very creator of who you are that you then begin to understand what your self-care needs truly are. And they aren't that that the world sells and delivers daily, necessarily. They aren't that of your grandparents or your parents. They're uniquely yours between you and your Christ and the new creation that you are. It's unique to who you are in Christ. It's a lifelong treasure hunt and practice. Do you hear what I said? It's a lifelong treasure hunt and practice. It's not a one size fits all. It's not a momentary thing or a repeated cycle continuously always. I've been reading my Bible now for 30 years. I've gone through it 15 times and well, you know, it just feels a little mundane. Yeah, no kidding. If I ate Cheerios that long, it'd feel a little mundane too. God is bigger than just the Bible. He exists in nature. He exists in prayer. He exists in song. He exists in the very people that drive you crazy. Ultimately, practicing self-care allows you the space and resources to handle 
what this sinful world is going to throw at you. And believe it or not, God gave you everything you need, either in the future to come or in the present moment to handle what life is going to throw at you. It may not be within you. It may be within that annoying person that you just can't understand why the heck they're so happy all the time. That coworker that drives you nuts, they're so poignant, they're on time. They get, it could be in the least likely place that you would lean toward because it's uncomfortable. Practicing self-care can look many ways. It can look like mindfulness. It can look like adventure. It can look like playtime. It can look, uh, sorry, like prayer time. It can look like paying bills. It can look like financial planning. It can look like saying, not very good at finances but I know so-and-so is pretty good. I guess maybe I should go ask for help. Hmm, not comfortable. It can look like going to the disability resource center like I've had to do at the university and say, maybe I'm struggling through my educational walk my entire life because I truly do have a disability. Wow, 40 years old and I'm going to have to go talk to somebody, a psychiatrist, Ooh, my mom used to threaten me to lock me up in a psych ward after she beat the snot out of me because she told me I was crazy. That's uncomfortable. That's outright scary. But I did it. And as a result of it, I've been able to understand myself better, find people that understand me better. And I've been able to progress towards success of who God has designed me to be. And you know what it says about me? I'm courageous. I have what it takes to do what I need to become what God has designed me to be. Any other narrative is false. It's the devil's lies. God doesn't make junk. They didn't lock me up either, by the way. I'm not out on a pass, free. Turns out I'm even qualified to be a therapist soon. I mean, who would have guessed? Certainly not me. The biblical example of this is Luke 5, 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. It was his custom to practice self-care. Wow. Turns out psychology keeps proving the Bible true. My last and and most exciting principle, and this one is for the young people in the room and the old people, but the young people especially. And this one, I shared this one actually with James Lalonde. We went for coffee uh, last Saturday uh, evening, and um, I, I didn't really think it would get as much traction as it did, but I shared this principle of dreaming with James. And it was like a firecracker lit off inside of him. We had been talking for about a half hour, 40 minutes or longer. And it was just kind of like, you know, and as soon as I talked about dreaming, something lit up in James and excitement. And I mean, you guys know James is pretty excitable already, right? And he's kind of, it was like that on hyperdrive. And his mouth just started going and he's just like, oh my goodness. And he just lit up and I, okay, okay. This one principle that I was scared to present has traction. And so I started to dig into it more. 
And it's actually a sermon onto its own that I would really love to give eventually. So I'm going to condense it here. The act of dreaming is critical because behind dreaming is faith. Think of the biblical stories. Samuel goes to who? Priest Eli and wakes him up. I'm having dreams. I'm hearing a voice. A noise. A noise, Eli. But eventually, because that's the voice of God. Joseph has dreams of the sheaves bowing down to him. But yet somehow gets taken and thrown into a pit. Sold into slavery. And then eventually saves the nation and the very people that threw him away. Jesus even mentions how important dreams are because he says, in my father's house, do not fret because in my father's house, there are many mansions. There's room. Now, I know in today's world, practicality, reality, science, everything is dictated by facts, numbers, statistics, and the bank account. Now, when I talk about dreaming, I'm not talking about the earthly dream of becoming rich. Because that isn't a dream at all. I'm talking about dreaming of having a life better than the one you lived in growing up. I'm talking about dreaming of the impossible. When I was a kid, somebody asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? It wasn't an electrician. <laughs> I had been so abused and, and so busy surviving the woes of life that I never knew until my teen years, until I had come to Christ, until I started attending Parkview Adventist Academy. And it wasn't until a year or two in to my adventure there that just for the smallest of moments, I allowed dreams to take root. And I remember dreaming, I would love to be a psychologist. And there I very quickly, in an instant of the thought, cast it out because I said, I'm too stupid. I don't get good enough grades. I don't learn like everybody else. I barely made it through high school. I'm an outcast, a reject. I've been through abuse. I didn't even know that back then, so I didn't use that term, to be honest with you. I just would say, I've been through a rough upbringing. We don't dwell on that side of the tracks. But somehow that seed was planted, and it turned from that to being a minister. You know why I wanted to be a pastor? Straight up. Because I believed that the church and CUC would be gracious enough to pass me through because they would need people who could speak. No word of a lie. That's what I believed in high school. So I was like, all right, okay, I'm going to go to CUC. They'll, I'll get in there. I mean, they'll take my money. They're taking it right now. They'll take it then. So I did. I pursued ministry based on the fact that I thought it would be the only way I could actually be a benefit or blessing to people because it would be the good graces of the church itself that got me to give me anything to offer anything. What a horrible thought, truthfully. The gift that I have to offer today is who God has designed me to be. It has nothing to do with the church or the people. It has nothing to do with the parents that I was brought up with. It has nothing to do with my life circumstances. 
my DNA, any of it. The very fabric and blessing that I have to offer is the very identity in Christ that I have. And that's it. And I'm telling you, if you think that way, dreaming isn't that far off. I'm designed by an infinite God, and so are you. So the possibilities, including becoming an RCMP officer, are there. They're right there. How many of you who are my age and older have had a dream, James is one of them, and gave up on it? forgot about it, have had that inclining while you're sitting in the pew or listening to that song that says, what if I stood my ground and changed the way Christian education is delivered in the Adventist church? What if I shook off the dogmatic, dogmatic traditional, non-functional beliefs that dwell and surround me, that hold me back, and just went after the pureness of Christ. What could be? Dreaming involves courage. It involves listening. And the third thing it involves is faith. My wife and I chose to move back to Kelowna, giving up six-figure incomes, having owned two properties, sold everything off after we had done all the math that said this is impossible. Kelowna's way out of our price bracket. Going to university at 40 years old and giving up half of our income but increasing our cost of living threefold? Impossible. I don't even have the grades to get into UBC. Do I? I opened the acceptance letter after we found a place to rent, after having owned. So I had to let go of some things to get some things. And I'm this close. I'm this close. And none of it makes sense. My finances don't make sense. My struggle as I learn doesn't make sense. It's all very uncomfortable. Sitting in this church at the worst time, barely being able to walk when we first moved here, and bawling because I couldn't help but cry, was uncomfortable. But God didn't bring me here. He didn't give me existence for comfort. He didn't just cast us into light. He gave us the darkness and the light. And without one, we can't understand the other. So it's not good vibes only. It's not everything I put my hand to works out well. It's perseverance. It's courage. It's prayer. It's self-compassion. It's self-care. Practicing dreaming accumulates us to this place of having the hope, the inspiration. And it is the most powerful force in our lives that causes the impossible to happen.